Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Naz Modirzadeh. It's been 20 years this week since the 9-11 attacks. Those attacks killed more than 3,000 people and injured many more. They also led to the so-called global war on terror, initiated by then-President George W. Bush, and in essence, continued, even if in modified form, by Presidents Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and so far at least, Joseph Biden. Jihadist militant groups like Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, their various branches, and the war on terror aimed at defeating them have cast long shadows over the past 20 years, especially in South Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. So over the next few weeks, we plan to look at some of this, how the war on terror, the post 9-11 wars have been waged, what their impact has been, and the evolving threat posed by groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Next week, we'll look at a report that Crisis Group has coming out on the legal basis of the war on terror in the US, how successive administrations have used laws and made policy on fighting Al-Qaeda and ISIS-linked groups. The week after, we'll look at another report that we have in the works, whether it's possible to reach a political settlement with Islamist militants and what that might entail. Crisis Group also has a series of pieces by our experts reflecting on what the war on terror has meant in regions they work. So look out for those on our website. We'll have a big public event at some point soon, looking at what the Taliban win in Afghanistan might mean for Islamist militancy elsewhere. Today, though, we wanted to do something a little bit different. So we wanted to talk a little bit between the two of us about the state of Islamist militancy, about Al-Qaeda, ISIS, similar groups today, and how they've adapted to the post-9-11 wars and the really enormous infrastructure and industry of counterterrorism set up in the aftermath of the Al-Qaeda attacks 20 years ago. Richard, I'm excited to be able to treat you like a, like a guest and a co-host today, because I know that the way we first got to know one another was working on these issues. And you've worked for many years on some of the countries most affected by jihadi uh, terrorism and militancy, Pakistan, Afghanistan, 
across the Middle East and in Africa. And you've been involved for many years with crisis groups who work on Islamic militancy, writing a number of big reports on Al-Qaeda and ISIS a few years ago uh, before moving into uh, your leadership position as chief of policy and now interim president. So what I think we'll try to do today is to set the stage for the upcoming episodes that you talked about by looking a little bit of the big picture of how jihadist militancy has fared through the different phases of the global war on terror. And I think at this point, we'll remove the so-called and assume our listeners understand that we may or may not be putting quotes around global war on terror through Bush uh, to today. I want to try to look at Al-Qaeda and, and later the emergence of ISIS over the past 20 years chronologically before we move on to some of the thematic and policy questions. So let's start uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, the Afghanistan invasion and the Iraq war. Can you tell us a word or two about what happened to bin Laden and al-Qaeda more broadly in those early years and how that has shaped what has happened since? I think one way to tell the story of Islamist militancy over the past 20 years is a story of ebbs and flows. And al-Qaeda, subsequently ISIS, expanding, becoming, becoming more of a threat and then sort of being pushed back and, and contained. And the first years, the first post 9-11 years over the Bush administration saw, I think, the first of these ebbs and flows. Now, when we look back on Afghanistan after the past few weeks, of course, you know, in that light, it looks very different. But initially, the US ousting of the Taliban dealt al-Qaeda, dealt bin Laden, really a devastating blow. You know, it's true that he and his um, his top commanders uh, escaped. You probably remember these sort of greenish night vision images of the bombing of Tora Bora, this cave complex in the Afghan mountains near Pakistan, where al-Qaeda was sheltering. But you know, they escaped. But although they escaped, they, 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 they scattered. I mean, some al-Qaeda leaders were in hiding in the Pakistani tribal areas, some holed up in Iran, uh, where they were subsequently picked up by the Iranian authorities, uh, seemed to have been sort of kept under house arrest. They'd lost their safe haven in Afghanistan. And the leadership of al-Qaeda was scattered and, and its movements very restricted. So then came the Iraq war, the invasion of Iraq, which I think everyone now recognises Saddam Hussein had no connection to the 9-11 attacks. And the US occupation really kind of breathed new life into al-Qaeda, but also sort of changed its identity in some ways. And a lot of this had to do with Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, this Jordanian militant who'd been in Afghanistan a couple of times. He spent time in jail. He was kind of a common criminal, very violent, also very sectarian. Quite a different character to bin Laden and bin Laden's deputy at the time, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who subsequently, when bin Laden died, became leader of al-Qaeda. But both bin Laden and Zawahiri, uh, quite worldly, quite educated, really quite different to Zarqawi. My colleague, Yost Hilterman, actually has a piece out this week that... Uh, that put some of this much more eloquently than I'm going to be able to. But but in essence, Zarqawi went into Iraq and really found very fertile soil for an insurgency fighting the US and fighting the new Shia-dominated Iraqi government. Thousands of young men travelled to Iraq to fight the US in you know, what was the heart of the Arab world. Now, Zarqawi appears to have had an uneasy relationship with bin Laden. I think both bin Laden and Zawahiri were sceptical about lending him the Al-Qaeda name. 
But they were on the run, sort of down and out after leaving Afghanistan. I think they had little option. And, and so Zarqawi's insurgency became al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now, partly as a result of this, I mean, there are other reasons as well, but partly as a result of this, something else happened, which I think has important repercussions today, which is that other militant groups in other parts of the world also expressed an interest in signing up and becoming al-Qaeda affiliates. Now, this happened over subsequent years. So al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, mostly operating in North Africa and subsequently the Sahel, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, al-Shabaab in Somalia. Bin Laden appears to have had sort of misgivings about some of these groups. But again, given the al-Qaeda core's weaknesses, he ended up adopting this franchise strategy, um, which in essence allowed these groups to formally uh, become sort of affiliates of al-Qaeda, while still themselves retaining what appears to have been a lot of operational leeway in what they were doing on a day-to-day basis. So that was happening in the twilight of the Bush years. But by that time, al-Qaeda in Iraq had largely been defeated. Zarqawi's violence had repulsed a lot of Iraqis, including Sunnis. The US had been able to form what were called the Awakenings militias, starting in Anbar province that had fought uh, Zarqawi's movement, Zarqawi himself was killed in this first post 9-11 surge of Islamist militancy, largely provoked by the Iraq war, had, you know, in some ways subsided by the end of the Bush administration. So, Richard, let's move into that period. So what happens now with the beginning of the first Obama term? We know there is a rise in drone strikes and drone operations, uh, which I think we'll talk more about uh, in our next episode in terms of, of legal and normative issues, but but operationally a rise in drone strikes and the sort of early days of, of what becomes a, a truly astonishing, I think is a fair word to use, wave of uh, Arab revolutions across the region. How does this impact the jihadi movement? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think Obama came in thinking that Bush had made things much worse with Iraq. And I think that was certainly true. I think top Obama officials tended to think of the affiliates as mostly a local threat. They were sort of worried by AQAP, the the Yemen branch, because it had this sort of famous bomb maker. I don't know how much that was overstated, but the Yemeni branch had been able to carry off a number of attacks that were a big worry to Western capitals. And the Obama administration focused mostly on drone strikes, stepped up special operations aimed at killing al-Qaeda leaders or those perceived in plotting external operations, so with bomb-making capability or other sort of capacities that Western intelligence viewed as a threat. Then, of course, bin Laden himself was killed in May 2011. And as that was going on, you had the Arab revolutions that you talked about, you know, which at first seemed to sort of put the final nail in the coffin of, of al-Qaeda. Violent jihad was nothing to do with it. I mean, this was all about peaceful revolution. Women took to the streets. It was a far cry from the sort of revolution, violent revolution and attacking the West that al-Qaeda was espousing. And even sort of in the immediate aftermath of those, they empowered the Muslim Brotherhood. Again, a sort of main ideological competitor of jihadists. So... What, 2011, even early 2012, it really looked like jihadism was almost kind of a spent force. Then, of course, the Arab revolutions descended into into war and chaos. 
And the most important, obviously, was what happened in in Syria. This increasingly brutal Syrian civil war, as Assad repressed uh, the the, the revolution, this allowed what had been Zarqawi's al-Qaeda in Iraq to regroup over the Syrian border. It formally split from al-Qaeda, sort of blitzed across a third of Iraq and established its caliphate. The Iraqi army, certainly again in Sunni majority areas, collapsed in a similar way that the Afghan army has sort of collapsed over recent weeks. ISIS profited sort of from the from Sunni anger, particularly in the way that Sunnis had been treated in the aftermath of the awakenings by Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. So ISIS then was able to use this sort of base and able to project this aura of success, its self-declared caliphate, to attract thousands of people to sort of travel to Iraq and Syria, join the caliphate, it was able to inspire uh, even organize attacks uh, across the world using the infrastructure it had. And this was the first time that a, that a jihadist group had controlled such a great swath of territory in sort of urban areas like this. Um, and also sort of replicating al-Qaeda's strategy of uh, the affiliates, it was able to attract other armed groups across the world to sign up to ISIS. So you had Boko Haram around Lake Chad becoming uh, an ISIS affiliate. You had a, a group in Libya capturing a, a city on the Mediterranean, Sirte. You had an ISIS affiliate in, in the Sinai. There was the establishment of the ISIS affiliate in, in Afghanistan, uh, Islamic State Khorasan province, which we'll talk about later. Richard, can I just interrupt you? Just one que- question before we move to the, the campaign against ISIS and the effort to crush ISIS. Can you reflect for us a bit your sense of what what was the significance for the global jihadi movement of the rise of ISIS and the declaration of the caliphate? So you mentioned early on there was a break with al-Qaeda and, and certainly ISIS seemed to be taking on a, a governance and a political approach that al-Qaeda hadn't. How do you see the, the significance of ISIS in that period before we get to what their fate once the campaign really ramped up? I think there were a number of things that ISIS brought that were very different to what al-Qaeda had done before it. Uh, first was the establishment, as you say, uh, of the so-called caliphate. Uh, Al-Qaeda affiliates had held territory before, but none had claimed to establish the caliphate or you know, none had governed such a large chunk of land with so many people either. Bin Laden, I think, had sort of warned against trying to do that. He saw that as premature. Secondly, I think ISIS ran a much more effective social media and public relations strategy than al-Qaeda. You probably remember that a lot of the videos were kind of horribly violent. But in fact, many of its recruitment videos sort of portrayed this idyllic life in ISIS-held areas. I think that was completely fake. I mean, by all accounts, it was pretty horrible, pretty unpleasant. And yet it still had this sort of very effective uh, global outreach using the sort of infrastructure that it had in, in places like Mosul uh, and, and Raqqa. You could you know, compare that then to the grainy videos or the, the sort of bad audio recordings of sermons by al-Qaeda leader uh, al-Zawahiri. ISIS was also much more sectarian. I mean, you'll, you'll remember the horrible treatment of the Yazidis, but it's deeply anti-Shia. And that reflected Zarqawi's legacy, of course, but it also reflected that although ISIS was a global movement, at, at its core, it was an Iraqi insurgency, including Saddam Hussein-era officials, many of whom had suffered at the hands of Iran-backed Shia militias. It reflected the sectarian hatred that had um, that had torn apart Iraq. It was also much more violent in general. I mean, al-Qaeda was hardly shy about killing people, but ISIS really took it to a new level. 
I think whereas Al-Qaeda had generally become craftier about picking its battles, its affiliates had been prepared to work with other armed groups, including some supported by states that Al-Qaeda normally wanted to, to overthrow, ISIS was sort of indiscriminate in its enemies. It really was fighting everyone at the same time. And then last, I think ISIS tended to attract a, a different demographic with its recruitment. I mean, it was jihad for kind of a populist era, an age of anger, as, as, as some people would say. It's a, it was a sort of um, a new generation of, of recruits. It wasn't the al-Qaeda old guard from the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan. And its leaders, its recruiters kind of attempted to tap not just the Sunni grievances in Iraq, but also sort of wider anger, discontent and disillusionment amongst young people. So I think there was a lot that was different. Um, but I think it's also important to note that al-Qaeda itself changed a lot with the Arab revolutions. It, although ISIS at the time was generating the headlines, in fact, the al-Qaeda affiliates themselves expanded, were able to attract more recruits. Uh, the Yemen branch, AQAP, as, you know, and fighting started between the, the, the Houthis and uh, the, the, the Saudi-led coalition and the Hadi government, uh, amid that chaos, AQAP seized a chunk of Yemen's coast uh, along the Gulf of Aden. Uh, it held the port city, Mukalla, for, 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 for some months. Uh, even before then, uh, a jihadist coalition of which uh, Al-Qaeda's Sahel branch was part had held uh, much of northern Mali for, for the better part of a year. And uh, Al-Qaeda's uh, Syria branch, Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, which essentially was, uh, was, was the, were the parts of Al-Qaeda in Iraq that didn't want to join ISIS, uh, that stayed loyal to Al-Qaeda, uh, that also expanded and really became kind of integral to the Syrian revolution. Uh, and very much part of the of the forces that were fighting uh, Assad. So, although ISIS at the time was was generating a lot of the headlines, the uh, the Al Qaeda affiliates uh, were also becoming much more potent forces. Now, I think sort of the question now is how significant were some of ISIS's innovations and the differences between ISIS and Al Qaeda? How relevant are those today? And and we'll talk in a moment about kind of the jihadist landscape as it stands. But I think certainly some of today's local ISIS branches appear more violent and sectarian than their al-Qaeda counterparts or, or rivals. The Afghanistan branch, uh, Islamic State Khorasan province, is very sectarian. I mean, it's conducted these horrible attacks against the Shia Hazara. But you can also find exceptions to that. I mean, some ISIS branches operate in areas where there aren't any Shia. I mean, it's difficult to be quite so sectarian then. Al-Qaeda local branches tend to emphasize trying to, win o trying to win over locals. They're more pragmatic in their alliances. Though, again, you also have some local ISIS branches that are doing that. So I'd say that while the enmity between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that still matters today. You know, how much ISIS's identity back then, which was really very rooted in the recent history of Iraq and Syria, you know, how much that shapes what groups are doing today. You know, I think that's a, that, that's a question. Really interesting. So now let's move to the campaign against ISIS. What happens in this next phase? So although ISIS you know, was this global threat, inspiring, instigating attacks all over the place, it took some time to get the counter-ISIS coalition together. Lots of governments signed up, uh, especially to, to, to help with the bombing campaign. Um, but mustering forces on the ground was a lot more difficult. 
I mean, the problem, I think, in Syria was first that most actors on the ground had other priorities. I mean, the regime, for example, was focused on defeating the rebels. Rebels, for the most part, were under attack from the regime, although, you know, they did, uh, certainly Jabhat al-Nusra fought ISIS in, in some places. But in Syria, the problem was also because the U.S. saw the most viable fighting forces against ISIS as the Kurdish YPG. And and Turkey, for its part, viewed the YPG as an extension of the PKK, the Kurdish insurgents in Turkey, Ankara's kind of sworn enemy. So the US working with the YPG against ISIS caused and still causes a lot of problems with Turkey. So that was one issue in Syria. In Iraq, the Iraqi army had just collapsed in parts of the country. So there was that. And then the most willing forces to fight against ISIS, at least sort of from the south, were Shia militias. There was this sort of mass mobilization of militias, but these needed to be organized. Also, it was important to ensure that they weren't kind of going to run riot in areas captured back. Many of the Shia militias were backed by Iran. So it took time to sort of build that coalition Uh, work out which army divisions could be reinforced for the counter-ISIS campaign. And the whole enterprise in Iraq required the US to work tacitly with with Iran. So that took time. And I think it also highlights some of the challenges we'll talk about later. Who's doing the fighting? I mean, who is on the front lines against, uh, against militants? So once the US put together this coalition, these sort of ground forces, they began to eat away at areas held by ISIS, began taking back cities. Now, in many cases, there was enormous destruction, partly caused by ISIS, but also this heavy reliance on on air power. I have to admit, we were sceptical at the time about the counter-ISIS campaign. I think we felt that it wasn't really accompanied by a strategy to win over Sunnis afterwards. I think we also feared that some of the forces that were fighting ISIS at the time once ISIS was gone, they would start competing for turf with each other. And to some degree, that, that happened. But in hindsight, clearly, it was important to uproot ISIS, to deny it the territorial control that was so key to its success. Now, this was important not just for people living there, you know, who were suffering under ISIS's rule, but I think also it was important because while it controlled those areas, it was able to inspired to orchestrate attacks abroad, it was able to inspire other groups to, to, to sign up and, and, and really cause a lot of chaos. So while you know, I don't want to excuse in any way the destruction uh, that the, the counter-ISIS uh, campaign entailed, I think it was still uh, important to capture back that territory from ISIS. At the same time as, as this was happening, there were also advances against ISIS affiliates and to some degree al-Qaeda affiliates elsewhere. So, so sort of as, as, the, as the Obama administration wound down, this wave, what had really been a ferocious wave of Islamist militancy spearheaded by ISIS, was again starting to subside. So, Richard, it, that brings us to, to the Trump presidency and as, I suppose the early days of the Biden presidency how much of a departure was this? Yeah, Trump is, is interesting. We'll talk more about this next week. Um, you remember, Naz, his, his campaign. I mean, it, it, was, it seems a long time ago now, but it was, it was a lot about ISIS, I mean, reflecting the fact that at the time ISIS was perceived as, you know, this, this, this I think rightly, as this, as this major threat. But once it came to his presidency, counterterrorism played, you know, I think a much smaller role than, than might have been anticipated from his campaign. Uh, in his foreign policy. I mean, much of his foreign policy was initially about North Korea, then, of course, China, and then the latter half really completely consumed by 
by COVID and on counterterrorism, I think in reality, there was a lot of continuity between Obama and Trump. Now, Trump administration eased some of the Obama era checks that were designed to prevent civilian casualties in um, you know, targeted killings in, in, drone spy, in drone strikes in particular. Uh, they seem less concerned about that. But the counter-ISIS campaign itself, the latter stages of which can sort of reasonably be portrayed as one of Trump's few foreign policy successes, you know, I think that was largely the strategy in essence was uh, inherited from, from Obama. It was well underway by the time Trump took office. And even, I think, one at least of the top officials in the White House in the Trump White House in the early years was a, was a carry-on from, from Obama. Trump's threats to revert to Bush-era torture, uh, you know, he sort of made a lot of noise about that during the campaign. Those were walked back by military leaders. And for all the talk of wanting to scale back U.S. operations, uh, his talks with the Taliban, the attempt and the failure to sort of pull out of northeast Syria, actually in some, in some areas, especially the Sahel, Trump actually expanded the U.S.'s military footprint. So, Richard, you started out describing the ebbs and flows of global jihadism since 9-11. Is your sense that the fortunes of the jihadists are being determined by the actions of these various coalitions and campaigns, uh, the uses of force that have been designed to, to crush the jihadist movement, or that it is, in fact, the jihadis that have been driving the main events that have occurred over the past 20 years? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's sort of a mix, but certainly the fortunes of Al-Qaeda, of ISIS, they're really woven into these bigger historical currents. You know, if you think the Iraq invasion was you know, absolutely crucial to understanding the sort of first post 9-11 surge, the Arab revolutions were really crucial to understanding the second, and both the Iraq invasion and the Arab revolutions are really crucial to understanding the emergence of ISIS. So clearly the fate of global jihadism is, is tied up with broader developments in, in the world. I think the corollary of that in some ways is that and I think what the last 20 years show is that jihadists really kind of only thrive in certain conditions. It's very difficult for a militant group, an al-Qaeda affiliate or, or you know, an ISIS affiliate, it's really difficult for them to recruit en masse or control territory outside a war zone, sort of outside the particular conditions of sort of state collapse or, or, or fighting. I think it's even quite rare that a jihadist group starts a war itself. Usually that hasn't been the pattern. The pattern's been that they come in later, they come in afterwards, and they profit from the division and the chaos. And I think that's sort of broadly because outside those conditions, they don't, they don't have an enormous constituency. They don't attract a lot of support. Now, some of what they're selling obviously resonates. I mean, the anger at abusive governments in the region, anger at the US role in the Middle East, you know, even people wanting some role for Islam in public life. You know, there's some grievances that are widely shared, but the method sort of excommunicating other Muslims, killing people that disagree with you, brutal violence, killing a lot of civilians, you know, that tends to have much less support. And where groups expand, they tend to do so kind of by coming in amid chaos and offering protection, offering basic law and order, offering firepower against a hated regime. That's sort of what tends to win them support or, or acquiescence, at least, rather than their ideas. So I don't want to underplay the importance or the power of the ideology. I think clearly some leaders are very motivated and clearly it can be a powerful recruitment tool with some people. But I think sort of as, as your question hinted at, it's, it's more the broader opportunities 
that are created by sort of other currents, whether it's the Arab revolutions or by their enemies' mistakes, like the Iraq war, that are more important to explaining the sort of ups and downs of, of Islamist militancy. So, Richard, that brings us to the present day and the question of where do things stand now? Um, are we on the cusp of a, a new rise of militancy? Um, how do you think the, the jihadi movement leaders are thinking about what is happening in Afghanistan? Where do you see things standing? You know, if you, if you look at kind of where things stand now, part of it is a story of Africa. Whereas before the center of gravity sort of swung, of, of jihadist militancy sort of swung between South Asia and the Middle East. Now there's just a lot happening in Africa. Al-Shabaab that we talked about earlier is stronger than ever. The African Union mission sort of helps keep it at bay. But you have a similar situation to Afghanistan, where if foreign forces pulled out, you know, it's easy to envisage Shabab kind of overrunning the country, or at least much of the country. The Sahel, things are sort of going from bad to worse. Militancy spread from the north to central Mali, Burkina Faso. A lot of the countryside is racked by violence between jihadist militants and, and other armed groups. The Boko Haram splinters around Lake Chad, again, uh, far from being defeated, still really a menace and, and causing a terrible humanitarian suffering. And then you've got this new front in Mozambique that we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago, a group also calling itself Al-Shabaab, claiming it's part of ISIS. So I think a lot of the story now is actually in Africa, where weak states or, or states whose presence in their peripheries has often been weak are really struggling to, to, to deal with a surgent uh, militant threat. And actually, there's a great piece that my colleagues uh, Mariti Mutiga and Comfortero have published this week that looks at the war on terror uh, in Africa uh, over the past 20 years and, and takes stock of where things stand now. So if people want more details, then you know, I'd really recommend that, that they take a look at that. On Afghanistan, I think it's really difficult to say. What I think is clear is the Taliban will clearly fight ISIS, uh, the Islamic State Khorasan province, this group that perpetrated the attack on the airport uh, a couple of weeks ago. Arguably, ISIS in Afghanistan is the biggest internal security challenge the Taliban now faces. I don't think the Taliban is going to break ties formally with al-Qaeda or even sort of crack down on other foreign militants with whom it has sort of relations. But I do think it has, again, very strong incentives to not allow Afghan soil to be used for plotting transnational terrorism. Its relations with the outside world, you know, not just with Western powers, but with China, Russia, uh, with others, that depend on it stopping Afghanistan being used as a safe haven for plotting abroad. Even Pakistan, very worried about militant groups that target Pakistan, Pakistani Taliban in particular, using Afghanistan as a, as a safe haven. But I think there's still plenty of reasons to worry about Afghanistan. I mean, the, the war has been going on for what, four decades now. You have many, many men who, you know, predominantly know how to how to fight. Many of them are going to be going home uh, after leaving the Afghan army, Afghan local police or security forces. It's very unclear how they're going to survive, what they're going to do. You also have the fact that the Taliban is going to have to keep all its different factions uh, within its own movement, happy. Um, and it's just very easy to see how people are going to become, people on either side could become disgruntled, either because they don't like the direction the Taliban's going or because they don't feel that they have enough of a share of power. They don't feel they have access to resources. They feel excluded. You know, and in some cases, they might join uh, the local ISIS branch. In other cases, they might uh, sort of opt for another form of, of rebellion. And history suggests, I think, that in that sort of environment, 
transnational militants are, are, are potentially going to do well. So all that said, are we on the cusp of another surge? Could it look anything like the ISIS years? I think that's unlikely. I mean, that was the product of a specific set of conditions. Now, is it impossible that another part of the world collapses, Al-Qaeda, ISIS-linked, or even another similar movement moves in, exploits the chaos? No, it's not impossible. And with the right opportunity, there's certainly plenty of discontent uh, to tap across the parts of the world that are traditionally most affected. Um, but more likely, I think, is that jihadism remains a persistent, quite dangerous challenge in Africa, some other parts of the world. But there isn't another massive wave along the lines of uh, you know, ISIS's emergence. So how should we understand whether or not at this stage the movement is still worthy of being called global? It, are jihadis today concerned about local matters focused on local and regional successes and challenges? Or is there still something that is connecting these groups with these ideologies together at a transnational level? Oh, there are definitely ties, uh, both personal and in other ways, uh, among some of the groups. In some cases, there's exchanges of information or expertise, they, they learn from each other. But I don't think either ISIS uh, nor Al-Qaeda today are centrally directed. I'm not sure they've ever been in a, in a sort of really command and control way, but they're certainly not uh, uh, now. I think the sort of big question is how much of a threat do they pose the US, other Western governments? How much of a threat do they pose to places outside the area in which they're operating? And is it enough of one to shape or, or even distort to the extent that it has over the past 20 years, uh, Western or international policy. Now, I think the challenge is that because of the affiliate strategy of both Al-Qaeda and ISIS, you have groups across a lot of today's battlefields that in principle call themselves part of those global movements. They, they call themselves Al-Qaeda, they call themselves ISIS. And in principle, they share the global aspirations, including attacking the West. Now, in practice, on a day-to-day -day basis, that, that doesn't mean very much. And, and it would be a mistake, I think, to see that as their primary identity. You know, they, they are, as you suggest in the question, they're locally focused. Even take you know, Al-Qaeda's Yemen branch, which used to be regarded as the most dangerous. Its fighters are now embedded in the anti-Houthi fronts. It's not really clear what Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, what AQAP is anymore. I'd be surprised if it dedicated a lot, if any of its time, to, to, to external plotting. ISIS remnants themselves, uh, the ISIS core, are sort of hanging on in the Iraqi and Syrian desert. Clearly, they don't have the infrastructure or the allure that they did some years ago to be able to inspire or, or let alone organise attacks. Boko Haram splinters, uh, including uh, the, the big one that calls itself now the Islamic State's West Africa province. You know, we've actually done some research that shows uh, that it received advice and expertise from ISIS, at least in the past, but that actually that didn't really change its identity or its targets. It was still rooted in the politics around Lake Chad. And in fact, one of the big recent changes is that Al-Qaeda's most important branch, or what was its most important branch, uh, what was Jabhat al-Nusra in Syria, it's now Hayat Takhr al-Sham, its leader, Abu Muhammad al-Jalani has explicitly disavowed global jihadism, says the movement's focused on Syria, focusing on governing the, the northwest. It's broken ties with al-Qaeda and actually has cracked down on 
al-Qaeda uh, linked groups and people with ties to ISIS in Syria's uh, northwest. Now, there are still occasional attacks in the West uh, inspired by ISIS, uh, by people saying they're part of ISIS or, or, or part of al-Qaeda. I think there were two ISIS attacks last year uh, in Europe, lone attackers in Vienna at the end of 2020 and then in the previous summer in, in London, in, in Streatham. But the numbers sort of pale in comparison to a few years ago. And I think as things stand now, if you look round jihadist groups and what they're up to, they're clearly a real challenge in areas where they're operating and a huge obstacle to ending some of the conflicts that they're fighting in. But it will be hard to argue that they pose a major, let alone an existential threat to the to the West. Plus, frankly, Western security services have got much better at preventing attacks. OK, so, Richard, you've you've painted a picture for us of a, of a jihadi movement that has changed considerably in the past 20 years. And today sounds both more fragmented, but also much harder to define and understand than uh, than Al Qaeda may have been in 2001. What does that mean for the war against terrorism? What does that mean for the effort of coalitions of states that continue to frame this as a fight against terrorism writ large? What does that look like today and and looking to the future? I I suspect that in the foreseeable future, it's going to look a lot like it does today with all the sorts of problems and, and challenges of that. And at the moment, what it looks like is in essence local state forces or alliances of state forces often together with auxiliaries militias often backed by western intelligence western training sometimes western air power fighting militant groups in different corners of the world in what are you know quite militarized strategies with in many cases i think no end in sight now this looks quite different in different places i think it's difficult to generalize but maybe there are a, a, a few themes that, that that I could sort of flag now, and then maybe in the in subsequent episodes we can we can pick some of these up. I think first is the the way the war is fought, and clearly the the war on terror, the struggle against Islamist militancy, has been marked by terrible abuses, and we will talk next week about some of the U.S.'s uh, abuses with Guantanamo, the renditions, Abu Ghraib, the civilian casualties related to the air campaigns against ISIS, drone strikes in other places. But beyond the US, clearly a lot of the other battles against uh, Al-Qaeda-linked or ISIS-linked militants have been marked by terrible abuses. Now, militants themselves, of course, have, have conducted terrible violence, which we've talked about. But, you know, you can look at some of the security forces abuses in the Sahel uh, or, or the way that the Pakistani military behaved in, in, in the tribal areas. We didn't talk about that much, but but again, sort of marked by a lot of abuses. You know, the way that the Nigerian army has, has conducted itself in the in, in north in, in the campaigns against Boko Haram. You know, all these too, too often marked by collective punishments, indiscriminate violence, disregard for human suffering. And, you know, more often than not, these are efforts that enjoy the support of Western forces. You know, I think generally speaking, the war on terror has been marked by violence on all sides, and you know everyone at times seems to seems to have thrown the rule book out of the window. Secondly, and and kind of related to that, I think there's still very little thought given to winning people over in areas that are most affected. Like, what's the strategy for improving the state's relations 
with people in those areas. I mean, to be fair to the counter-ISIS campaign, there was some thought for this, despite the enormous destruction. And I definitely don't want to excuse the, the, the raising of some of the, the cities. But there was at least a reluctance to let the Shia militia lead, that that would be, you know, just open the door to more of the, the same abuses that have sort of fueled ISIS's rise in the first place. But often there's not even that type of consideration. And the only sort of representatives of the state that people see are soldiers or security forces who are predatory, corrupt officials. You know, and again, I'm not saying here that it's about kind of throwing development aid at the problem. I think the combination of aid and military campaigns tends not to work very well. But it's about thinking through how the fighting and how the military strategy is going to shape the relationship between states and the people in areas that are that are affected most. I think the third issue is sort of what space there is for options beyond the military campaigns. And, and again, I, I sort of don't I don't want to pretend that military uh, operations aren't part of the strategy. I mean, of course, against groups, once they start controlling territory, once they get big enough, it's very difficult to imagine a strategy that doesn't entail the use of force. But there's often not enough space for other policies alongside military efforts, policies to win over communities, which I talked about, uh, but also sort of options for dialogue with militants. Now, a crisis group has argued for, for dialogue in several places, whether it's to peel away parts of a group or even in some cases engage militant leaders. Now, there's some big challenges to that. You know, in some cases, militants themselves don't seem interested or have goals that are hard to accommodate. But I think we would argue that dialogue shouldn't be ruled out as an option. And I think we'll we'll have a whole podcast in a couple of weeks that will look at this in, in, in more depth. And then I think last is this sort of much bigger question of the role for Western or other foreign security forces. And again, this is something that we're going to talk about in more depth next week, at least the sort of legal basis for that. And there's a lot to unpack in this. I think the era of big sort of Western interventions, the Afghanistans or Iraqs, I mean, I mean, that sort of seems over. But US forces, French forces in the Sahel, they're still there in a lot of places, I think, without really a good exit strategy. Now, there's strong reasons to believe that they're not going to defeat militants. In fact, in many places, the the, the trends are all sort of moving in the other direction. I think there's good reasons to be sceptical in many places about training local allies and how long that's going to take, whether that's really realistic. And yet it's also not clear what the implications of them pulling out would be or, 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 or the removal of, of, of US, or in the case of the Sahel French support. And yet they clearly can't stay forever. And the African Union in Somalia, which we spoke about, confronts a similar dilemma. So I think there's a set of questions around the sustainability of foreign operations and around uh, and around exit strategies. I think there's a set of questions around drone strikes and targeted killings. Clearly, in some cases, they have weakened movements. They've kept the Al-Qaeda core at bay. Uh, kept it under pressure. But in other cases, fragmenting movements might not be, by killing the leaders, might not be such a good idea. Harder line leaders might replace those killed. There's obviously the risks of, of civilian casualties that we talked about. So, yeah, lots for us to uh, to talk about in the uh, in the weeks ahead. Richard, thank you so much for this uh, discussion and for your insights. I think this sets us up really well for our next conversation, which is going to be about some of those counterterrorism policies and approaches that we've talked about a bit today and uh, and this counterterrorism industry that has 
uh, expanded tremendously over the last 20 years. So we will continue the conversation then. Thank you so much. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the legacy of the war on terror on our website, crisisgroup.org. Follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. And thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we'll help you join us again next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.